How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah, that live studio audience, don't you just love that? <laughs> I'm glad they can make it. Yeah, me too, especially these days with COVID. That was great, Mark. As always, wonderful introduction. COVID. And hello, Thomas McCoy. Hello, Dr. Joe. Other co-host, how have you been? Well, I am walking on sunshine, Dr. Joe, and it's you'll find that walking in general is becoming easier and easier. I'm shedding those pounds, brother. Well, what is going on? Where, where are you at now? Well, uh, I started at around 2.35. I started uh, dieting right after my birthday. Down to around 2.22 now. Woo! And I imagine a lot of that is... And I'd also like to uh, say happy birthday to one of our past guests, John McAfee, who just turned 75 years young today. Yeah. <laughs> happy birthday, Johnny. One of our favorite guests, John. If you're oh, listening, yeah. we'd love to get you back. Yeah. yeah we're doing. Come on back in. Come on back in and hang out with us. Yes, those those were a couple of fantastic interviews with Mr. McAbee and his opinion. But, you know, we should actually maybe play some clips of those in a few weeks to we do that. Because, guys, uh, just so you know, to our audience, what we're doing is we are reviewing uh, some of our older guests, not older like 75 older, but our guests from the past who uh, have so much to talk about we just wanted to get some clips from them and go a little bit deeper. We are continuing to look at the theme of addiction because there's so much still going on in it. Major, major deal going on with substance use. And it's it's still here. And as I say, you know, COVID is not an immunization against substance use. So we really want to continue talking about that. Several large issues in the world. There's COVID. Uh, there's what's happening with our racial tension, uh, but we mustn't take our eyes off the addiction and the opioid crisis as well, because it's still killing people. So we'll talk about it. So who we got tonight? What are we talking about tonight, Tom? Well, tonight we have three clips from three great guests. We have Eugene Barrison, Georgia Foster of Drink Less Than Seven Days, and we have Ed Jacobs of the Plymouth County District Attorney's Office who talked to us about adverse child experiences and how that definitely plays into future addiction problems. It certainly does. You know, uh, one of the leading causes for first-time substance use is low self-esteem. And a lot of our kids who have gone through adverse childhood experiences, the abuse that they go through, the neglect, uh, they certainly are, are at high risk. No fault of their own. Remember, addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. So shall we go straight to the first clip and let's, uh, let's talk about it. We've probably trained over 6,500, almost 7,000 teachers. Mm -hmm. And our job, our idea is to see if we can't get teachers to come up with um, kind of what, what the book calls, or the trauma book, the uh, Helping Traumatized Children. It's called the four, you know, that we look for the four domains of, uh, of kids. And, you know, to try to understand relationships and try to understand um, 
uh, academic performance, you know, try to understand the child's health and well-being. And, and so we're, we're looking at the domains and giving teachers kind of a common language to talk about kids. And we're also trying to train not just teachers, but librarians, cafeteria workers, because there are people in schools, when you think about kids at schools, that it's funny, they may not have a relationship with a teacher, but boy, that, that cafeteria lady's awfully nice to them, and they seem to have a nice repertoire back and forth over the course of the day. And for some kids, that's really, really important. It's like subtraction by subtraction by being separated from those people, like the lunch ladies, the cafeteria workers, that you really take for granted and you don't really measure how much they impact you every day. And then there's subtraction by addition by if you come from an abusive household, you're stuck there. Yeah, really good point, Tom, especially, you know, especially during this age of COVID and hybrid learning and, and kids being at home. And yes, you know, what, what Ed Jakes was talking about is how some kids remain resilient to their adverse childhood experience. And you know how it is? Because there's someone in their life who sees them as valuable. There's always one person in, in all the resilience literature. And remember, resilience is the idea that you can be faced with a terrible, terrible event in your home or social domain that can affect the way you view yourself in the IC domain, which is gonna affect your biological domain of your, your brain and body and how you feel, whether you're depressed, anxious, angry. But then there's a person who just chats with you, who just reminds you that you are valuable through that IC domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? And when that happens, it is amazing how we as humans respond. I mean, you all know that, what it's like when somebody just says, yeah, you're amazing, or let's chat, or I've got time for you, right? So that's part of what we're hoping can still happen, even though we're in the midst of this COVID crisis. But how do we do that? How do we get those kids in front of that charismatic adult that can help them? That's really one of the challenges. But this is part of the risk we have. You're right, Tom. You know, if, if you're stuck at home uh, in an environment that is so stressed out, and it's, it's not just whether it's abusive or not, but parents right now, they have a lot of things on their mind. This morning, I, I don't know, Mark, are, are your kids back at school yet? The hybrid learning has begun. So um, uh, there, n none of them have entered the school Tomorrow begins the uh, the new frontier for them in school, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely uh, an interesting time. Yeah, um, this morning at, at Riverside Community Care, we we're having our our leadership meeting, uh, which is all Zoom, and at least three or four of our regular attendees had to keep going out because they were having technical difficulties getting their kids uh, in school in terms of the you know virtual learning and the the software and and the connection isn't good and you know something's going on with how we're getting in touch with with the teachers uh, man huge challenges for everybody out there right now you know oh yeah no doubt and 
of course, not every kid or family that is challenged is going to wind up using drugs and alcohol. I mean, of course not. But there are some who are just at higher risk for it because there may be other adverse experiences already at play. And they go to school in a way as a safety net, as a relief. We need to be mindful of this because, you know, if that's taken away and it is going to be, we need to watch. These kids may be at even higher risk because there isn't that moment with that lunch lady just spending time and maybe having a chat, you know? So we really need to be mindful of that. There's Timmy. Hello, Timmy. Hi. Uh, big round of applause for Timmy. Hey, Timmy, uh, so what's going on with school? What's happening? Well, it's very weird this year and different. Um, so they're going to do hybrid, which is Monday and Tuesday. I will not be there, but the A through L will be there. And then on Thursday and Friday, uh, I will be there, L, L through Z. And Wednesday will be full remote. My last name then, right? L through Z? Yeah. Yeah, last time. Wow. So uh, has has this started yet? Did school start yet? Well, they're going to take three weeks before before they do the real thing. So right now they're like, someone went to, so the first half went today, and I will go tomorrow. So they're like, yeah. So you got some feelings about that? I mean, you're going to have to wear a mask. You know, you, this is what happens when you come in to your dad's radio show. You know that, is we always get you on and chat with you, which we, is a delight. So, so you're nervous about anything? Um, not really. I mean, it's going to be different because we won't be able to, like, get close to our friends and, like, hang out. I mean... Touch your face. <laughs> yeah, that must have been oh, the seventh yeah. time in the last 30 seconds. I wash my hands. <laughs> um... Yeah, it's going to be weird. And all the seats are going to be six feet. You can't, like, sit next to someone. Usually there's, like, a seat in the seat in regular school, but... Right. You can't pass doodles. Right. Uh, people will definitely notice if you're passing notes because you're going to have to, like, throw them, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, w I was listening uh, to radio show the other day at NPR. Sorry, Mark. But, um, and they, <laughs> I just throw that in. Because I can, but they were they were talking with uh, parents of some kids, and um, the kids were were fine with wearing masks all day, uh, and made a point of saying, "Hey, we get to take them off to eat lunch," uh, which I think is is an important thing. Make sure, make sure you do that. Yeah, don't eat lunch with your mask on. Please don't 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 try to to do that. But um, your parents may know exactly what you had for lunch if you don't wipe your mouth. So, because that mask will go right back up. What what what's uh, what's it been like before that? Because school's been out basically since March, right? I mean, were you doing online stuff? Were they doing virtual stuff? Well, they weren't like they didn't really know what was going on, so they they weren't doing like this Zoom. They were just sign, assigning like assignments that were <clears throat> much easier than regular school. So you could do them at like nine o'clock. They were due at like midnight. You could do them at any time of the day. There was no schedule, so they were just winging it. His <laughs> words, not mine. <laughs> right, right. Was that nice? <laughs> you feel like you had a break? Uh, yeah. We had a long break. Yeah. And we drove to Florida. 
yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, I, I want you to, to be coming in, if you can, on a regular basis and, and keep giving us updates on, on what this experience is like. It's rare for us to have an opportunity for a real, you know, personal eye view of this. So that would be much appreciated. And I think there will be a lot of folks out there who will be interested in it. So, okay. Do we need yeah. to get released from you, Mark, for that? It's fine. It, no, no. He <laughs> Please sign yes. here, here, and here. He wanted to make sure that he uh, he, he let you know law so, of attraction. So yeah. I was I was like sitting over there, and I had a uh, ring in my ear. I was like, okay, someone's talking about me right now, and I heard Dad over there talking. You were like talking about something I couldn't hear. So I was like, oh, let me check out the live, and you guys are talking about me. And so I came in here. That's great. Well, thank you, Timmy. I really appreciate it. We'll catch you uh, maybe next week. You can tell us what's going on. All right? All right. Thanks for coming, Timmy. Cameo appearance. How about we go to the next clip, uh, Gene Baresson. Let me just ex introduce Gene Baresson to you. So Gene Baresson is a professor um, at Harvard Medical School. He was my mentor and teacher uh, in my child psychiatry fellowship. He is the... Um, the head of uh, the Clay Center, um, an endowed center uh, at Mass General, and he's just one of the smartest people I know and uh, also a terrific piano player and musician. So uh, let's hear what uh, what Dr. Bereson has to say. Ben, can you play that clip? I mean, it, it, it never hurts to ask. I mean, even even if, it, you know, even questions about suicide. I mean, so the, the myth is, is that if you ask a question, have you thought about just kind of like ending it all? And look, you know, for some kids who, for example, a senior in high school that is losing out on the prom, playing varsity sports, and, and, their, and their games are canceled, um, and they're going to go to college or they're going to go to work, and this is their last hurrah, it could be like the end of the world because teenagers, you know, the brain doesn't mature until 26. So for the 17, 18 year old, they're still in an early form of, of their brain formation and they're acting largely on impulse. And for them, it may feel like the end of the world. So to say to them, to ask them, you know, are you feeling so bad that you're not gonna be playing in lacrosse championships or in the baseball, you know, you're not gonna pitch you know, you're for the final game in, you know, of the series. Um, are you feeling so bad that you've thought of hurting yourself? The myth is, is that you don't ask that question because you're going to put a seed in their mind and then they will do it. It's actually, if a kid is feeling helpless, hopeless, and like throwing in the towel, even though they may not do anything, asking about it is a relief because they want to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Barassan. Yeah. Uh, so important. So, Tom, were you alluding to some of that before when we were talking about kids and, and what this must be like for them? Yeah. Also, the idea of the last hurrah he mentioned, where if you're if you're in high school, there were so many deadlines that were just arbitrary. It's like, oh, you got to get laid by 18. You got to get into five colleges. <laughs> that was not the deadline I thought you were going to talk about. But go ahead. Well, yeah, you got to find a date to the prom. You got to make uh, varsity or whatever it is. And that's been taken from you by uh, an unfortunate turn of events. Yeah. 
But that last hurrah thing is kind of a myth. Like, you don't stop. Fun doesn't stop after high school. I feel like that's that's something that has been implanted into people's head or that fun stops after college or something like that. When you hear someone say that they're, the best time in their life was high school, I just think, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, no, I, I certainly would not say that the fun stops after anything. I mean, it's really up to you and your mindset um, about the fun part. The, the time part is real, though, because time is a very abstract concept to begin with. You know, time, you know, it's, uh, I mean, think about when, when we've had Christopher Sarson on, you know, the producer of Zoom, he's calling in from New Zealand. And in New Zealand, it's the next day and some, which is sort of mind-blowing. So it can be 8 o'clock at night here on a Thursday and, you know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday for him. So time is weird. But for little kids, uh, there's no question that time uh, seems to be an eternity. If it doesn't happen now, it's never going to happen. And I, I know I've told you the story about the kid in the elevator right where we're, we're going down in this elevator about the 15th 16th floor the doors open little girl gets in with her mom the little girl must be maybe four years old we get down two floors and this little girl says this is taking forever we're never going to get there down to the lobby because for her time if it's not happening now it's not going to happen and it's really worth talking about that longer in terms of addiction because with addiction what happens is part of the brain that is responsible for that memory section for that ability to sort of have that rational thought and anticipate what's happening in the future remember that anticipating what's happening in the future is in the prefrontal cortex that part of your brain right behind your forehead what will happen next addiction is in the limbic system which is not at all about what will happen next. It's what's going to happen right now. And that's what takes over the brain. There is minimal ability for what we call delayed gratification. Can I wait for something that will be nice to happen later? For the person addicted to drugs, it's, it's, it has to happen now. I need that rush now. And that's part of why it gets so dangerous because the person with addiction actually takes over their prefrontal cortex to make the plan. So the limbic system takes over the ability to make a plan. And what's lovely about what we do in terms of having a prefrontal cortex is that we can plan and we can anticipate what will happen next. So you were struck by something that Dr. Peresson was talking about, Mark, right? I was, and it actually stuck with me. I remember that episode uh, really well because, um, you know, you, you think of suicide as, uh, as something you really shouldn't talk about, right? Because you don't want to put something in someone's head. You know, they might be struggling, but you don't want to add that to it. And he, he turned that upside down and on its head, and it was enlightening for me um, listening to him talk about that, the, the clip that we just heard saying, you know, talk about it. You know, it might be a relief for them so that they feel normal 
thinking about having suicidal thoughts as opposed to the only person having these suicidal thoughts. Thus, the inevitable conclusion is suicide. But having that conversation, open dialogue, it's not uncommon to have these thoughts. Let's talk about it. Um, It was really eye-opening for me. And it was eye-opening because you thought that what the mythology, you know, if you talk about it, you're going to put the idea in someone's head? I guess, you know, in a, in a way, I mean, in a, yeah, I'm, I, I would have to say that that would be it. You know, you, it's just one of those things you you don't want to talk about it because it's got this mystical um, feeling about it, that it might actually, you might create something. Right. right? And then what would you do? And then, you know, what, I mean, what do you do if you have a friend or someone that you know who is suicidal? Um, because it places an enormous responsibility on you. Right. So some people don't ask because they don't want to know, right? Which right. is honest but sad because the whole idea is, why does somebody feel suicidal? Why do they feel in such despair that they don't see a future? That all they see in the future is more here and now. It's like, remember we spoke about this a little bit before, that these two ways of thinking, things either happen right now uh, or they're never going to happen, like that little girl going down in the elevator. And then as you grow older, you begin to have abstract thought. You begin to think about the future. You can think about thinking. You can sort of anticipate what will happen next as your prefrontal cortex begins to mature. And then sometimes I think both of these ways of thinking occur simultaneously. And a person who is depressed can think about the future, but all they see is more here and now, as if nothing will ever change. Uh, And that can lead someone to say, you know, what's the point? What's the point of going on? I've I've had countless patients who have had that experience. And I will go over this idea of these two ways of thinking and that the idea that nothing will ever change. And I'll say to them, what size shoe do you wear? And they sort of startle and they'll tell me what size shoe they were. And I'll say, what size shoe did you wear when you were six years old? And obviously it's smaller because that's changed and this will change. It's just that at this point in time, being this depressed, it doesn't seem like it will, but it will. Uh, and then, then you use the I am. What is going on in my four domains that the best I can do right now is feel so useless, so worthless, so hopeless and helpless that the best I can do is think about taking my life and ending it all. And you look at the domains and there will always be something you can change. Always. You know, trust me, I'm a doctor, but there will always be something you can change because you're feeling that way for a reason. It's not out of nowhere. Sometimes it might be medication that you need, but sometimes it might be just like that lunch lady that we spoke about reminding you of your value. And somebody says, you know, you, you are valuable. You have purpose. That can rekindle some things. 
But everyone's felt sad. And that's why, you know, we're talking about this now because in the time of COVID, uh, I think a lot of people are feeling pretty sad. It, I've it, noticed it a lot more recently also, you know, when people thought that COVID was going to be a 60, 90 day sprint, you know, they could kind of put their head down and we'll get through this, we'll adapt, we'll do it. And now, you know, it's not, and there's not a, you know, a bright light end of tunnel scenario that people are starting to run out of gas and just kind of fall flat. And some it's, you know, kicking in a, 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 um, a, a moment of depression that they've never experienced before. Right. So they don't know. They're like, I'm going through some stuff. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm hearing it a lot. And what I'm noticing, and I think we talked about this quite a bit, even with Dan Hassett, when we had Dan on, is is the open dialogue that COVID has created for people to feel okay to say, you know what, I am not feeling myself. And people are saying, you know what, I get it. What can I do to help? Yeah, and and I I must say that feeling that is not an abnormal thing. I mean that is one of the things that is happening with COVID is we're recognizing mental health is part of our fundamental need. It's not some weird thing, and all these people you know in psych hospitals and mental illness you know they're somehow defective and then. You know, some of them, you know, they should know better. They should just, you know, stop it. Um, no, it's it's part of who we are as human beings. Look, everybody gets sad. It's one of our human emotions. But that doesn't mean everybody gets depressed. But right now, a lot of people are depressed. So, you know, what is the difference between that sadness and that depression? The way we talk about it in, in psychiatry, the way you you try to assess it is you say to someone, do you still care about anything? Mm. Still care. And if they don't care, we call that apathy. We just don't care. Do you still enjoy things? Anything, you enjoy things. And if they don't find joy in anything, we call that anhedonia, no joy. And then you wanna know, do you feel helpless? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel worthless? And then you say, you know, are you feeling suicidal? And the scale that I've developed, it's the suicide scale. And I'll say to somebody, so on a scale of zero to 10, a suicide scale, zero, you say to me, Dr. Schrand, if I walk out of here, I'm fine, no problems. And a 10 is, you say to me, Dr. Schrand, if I walk out of here, I know exactly where I'm gonna go I know exactly what I'm going to do. No one's going to find me. I'm going to be dead. Where are you on that scale between zero and 10? And what I will say, no matter what the number is, let's say they say a seven. I'll say, well, why not a nine? What would need to change in any of the domains to make you more suicidal? So they begin to look at what's happening, what the influence is of the domains on how they're feeling. I'll say, what about a five? What would need to change to make you less suicidal? And when they begin 
to reflect like that, it is shifting them back into that prefrontal cortex, the ability to really wonder about things. And they begin to realize that there are things that they can change in any of the domains that would make them feel less hopeless, that would give them joy again, that would make them care again. It is all about change, but it's being able to look at yourself honestly. And that's what the I am is for. Remember, we're all doing the best we can. If you don't like it, you can change it. We want to look again at why we do what we do. Again, look, respect. That lets you look honestly at what's going on with you. But right now with COVID, it does feel pretty hopeless in some ways. Because COVID is a predator, an invisible one that is threatening all of us. And yet, we know there's certain things we can do to protect ourselves and other people. We've been talking about these for months now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, you keep the social distance. If you're feeling sick, don't go into work. Just call and say, I'm feeling sick, just in case. Five fundamentals. We have to be able to do those things in order to protect each other. But it does feel pretty overwhelming, doesn't it? I'll be honest, even me, I'm, 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 you know, looking back and thinking, you know, what else could I have done? You know, is there more I could have done to help my patients? Or should I have got that book published? Should I have been doing these other things? And then I think what you think affects what you feel. You know, if my, my good friend Mark helped me out with that just the other day, I was feeling depressed and sad because my kids were going to be going across country. Uh, and I was getting worried. What's going to happen to them? Well, if I think that, I shouldn't be surprised that I'm going to feel anxious. On the other hand, right now, they're going across country, and they're having a great time. So that thought changes my entire feeling. We can do this even with people who are suicidal and depressed, because when you can help them understand why, why they feel what they feel, then they have a chance to change it. How are you meant to change something if you don't know why it's happening? So with that in mind, let's, let's go to our last clip. Tom, tell us a bit about who's going to be talking. Well, uh, this was our guest for episode 36, Drink Less in Seven Days, by the author of the book of the same name, Georgia Foster, a UK-based hypnotherapist that helps, you know, the everyday man and woman cut down on their drinking. And, well, Ben. Now, even if that person's thinking about having a drink at 9.30 in the morning, it doesn't mean they're going to have a drink at 9.30 in the morning. It means that the stirring is starting. And they maybe ha have a really busy life, you know, take the kids to school, do the shopping, um, do whatever they need to do in the office environment. And, at, you know, call it the beer o'clock or the wine o'clock that comes out at five or six o'clock, is all of a sudden the brain says, once you have that first sip, thank you for listening to me, now we can calm down. So what I'm saying is that we need to train the brain to not reach for that frenzied moment of alcohol to be the solution. Yeah. Which is very easy, isn't it? <laughs> what do you mean, Tom? Well, 
I'm very lucky in that I don't really form substance-based habits that easily. Uh, and all throughout quarantine, I think most days I would have a drink. Hmm. And it, it was the days would stack up onto each other, then I'd start to get worried. And I'd like take a day or two off to just prove myself that it's like this isn't this isn't permanent, is it? Because we were almost excited. Well, I, I can't speak for everyone here, but I was almost ex- it was almost exciting for it's like, oh, look at me. I'm naughty. I'm drinking at 10. Hmm. Uh, but then it got too real. Hmm. And I hope people were able to escape that. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Mark, you want to say there something? Some, there, well, there were some funny, um, you know, social media posts you know, into the COVID maybe 30, 60 days where my coffee hour is getting very, very close to my wine hour. And I had mentioned that to somebody and they laughed and they sent me a text picture of a um, mocha beer that they had started drinking at 11 or whatever. And, you know, and some people were very open about it and saying, you know, yes, my drinking has increased uh, exponentially since um, I, with Thomas, I'm glad I just, I, I don't love drinking. So I, I, that wouldn't be something that would, uh, you know, I, I, I would fall prey to, but I could see, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It's that internal voice, right? And it's that, you know, as you start to, get anxious and then you use whatever it is you're using, your brain starts to get weaker and think that you can't handle these situations. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that a little bit more for folks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is based on uh, a reinforcement. So the first thing to, to go back to what George was saying is, if you don't have the first drink, you don't have to worry about the second drink. You know, for some people, it's true that when they have that first drink, they just they just can't stop. It it just is a runaway train. Again, it's it's not about morality; it's about mortality. It's the way the brain works. Um, but if you are drinking or using any drug to avoid a feeling like feeling angry, anxious, or sad. Every time you use a drug or an alcohol to avoid that feeling, just like Mark's saying, you, you begin convincing yourself you're not strong enough to deal with that feeling. Now, if you don't think you're strong enough to deal with feeling sad or anxious or angry, what do you think happens to those feelings? Do they get worse? Of course they do. They don't go away because what you think affects what you feel. If I think, oh, my God, I can't deal with this, you are going to feel whatever it is even more. And your brain says, well, what are you waiting for? You know what to do. Go have a drink. Release all that dopamine. Get some pleasure. Get some relief. Block that memory. Stop that feeling. And so you use. And then next time you begin to have that feeling, your brain even quicker says, what are you waiting for? And you actually begin creating the very feelings that you were trying to avoid to begin with. Um, there's a wonderful book. Remember The Little Prince by St. Exupery? It's a children's book. If you go and find chapter 12, 
it is about an alcoholic. It's one page, chapter 12 of The Little Prince. It is definitely worth a read. Little Prince comes across a planet where there's a tippler, used to be named for an alcoholic. And he says to the tippler, why are you drinking? He says, I, I drink because I need to forget. He says, forget what? He says, I need to forget that I am ashamed. He says, ashamed? Ashamed of what? And the tippler says, ashamed that I drink. I mean, what could be more perfect a description? How many people feel so ashamed and guilty that they are drinking at all, and then they drink again because they don't want to feel ashamed or guilty? Hmm. We see it all the time. Not about morality. It's about mortality, the way the brain works. So yeah, right now in COVID, just because you're not going into work, just because you're stuck at home, just because maybe there are all these scary things out there, first, it doesn't mean you're alone. And it really doesn't mean that you need to then go and have a drink at 10 o'clock in the morning. But for those people who already are at risk, I think the risk is exponential. I think it's huge. Because in one way, you're isolated. You're feeling all these feelings. You may not be able to get to the groups that you go to. You may not think you've got the supports that you have. But let me assure you, you do. Those supports are still there. We now have virtual AA groups that are just tremendous. And I think I, I might have mentioned this before, but some of my patients are going to AA groups in other parts of the world. It's the coolest thing for them. So, yeah, there may be the time difference, but they're still going to a, an AA group in London and checking it out. And they're realizing that people have the same concern. This one guy said, I thought I was the only one in the world who couldn't stop drinking if I was drinking. I thought I was the only one in the world who had this degree. And I'm realizing it's people all over the world that may have this. That's what the fellowship of AA is about. That's really that ability to share with somebody else. And it's the same thing that we've been talking about all night. You know, whether it's feeling suicidal or whether it's worrying about drinking, there is someone there who can be that lunch lady for you, that charismatic person who believes in you, who says, you're okay. Let's talk about this. It's happening. Why? What's going on in any of the domains? Let's look again at why it's happening instead of judging it, which is only going to make you feel more angry, anxious, or sad, because that's what judgment does. That's what prejudice is. That's what stigma is. It's about judging each other and sometimes judging ourselves. But you use the I am approach. You can say, okay, even that judgment is my I am, but I don't have to like it. I can change it. Let me look again at why I'm doing what I'm doing. So that's part of what the I am approach is all about. That's what it has to offer you. So you can read more about it. I'm psychology today on my blogs. You can get one of my books called, Do You Really Get Me? Learn about the I am. Because especially right now during COVID, you may have time to read. Uh, so why not? So another wonderful evening with everybody. All right, folks, have a great night. See you next week.